Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate it as always. Another great guest for you. Another one kind of in the series of learning about interesting professions that I know very little about. Uh, experienced tattoo artist is what I'm speaking with today. Uh, world-renowned tattoo artist, uh, Dan Hink. He's going to tell us all about what it was like getting into tattooing 22 years ago. Uh, what it's like now, how people even break into it, whether you know you go through this long process or whether it just takes being a good artist. Um, kind of some of these funny stories that he's you know he's gotten along the way, um, some crazy customers, uh, what it was like kind of branching out and starting his own shop. Um, once something that I really wanted to learn about was obviously we all know, you know, Ink Masters and LA Ink and Miami Ink, all these reality shows, how true are they to the real tattoo profession? You know, on this podcast, we've talked to a lot of different people on reality TV, and we've seen that, uh, you know, TV has a way of making things just a little different than what they really are. Is that the case in these tattoo shows, or is are they are they accurate? Uh, he's going to tell us a, a little bit about that, and then his, uh, his overall thoughts on... Uh, I guess, on reality TV and the tattoo world. Uh, He's lived a very interesting life uh, from growing up kind of an army brat to a um, getting stabbed to having uh, brain cancer about 20 years ago. Just a fascinating life. Uh, He's done some really uh, amazing things. I really enjoyed speaking with him. I think you're going to enjoy this. Whether you're like me and have zero tattoos and just want to kind of learn about the profession or whether you're all tatted up and you just kind of want to hang out with a really cool guy um dan hink is definitely your your guy there and uh, without further ado here is dan hink i'm here today with dan hink dan how are you i'm good good yeah well thanks for joining me i really appreciate it thank you yeah absolutely yeah i'm excited to talk to you about things i know very little about. That's kind of why I, I have most people on the podcast. You're no different. But before we get to, you know, your writing and then also your your work as a tattoo artist, just a little bit about Dan Hink, you know, in your own words, maybe maybe pre-writing, pre-tattooing, just kind of you uh, growing up. Okay. Uh, I have military parents. I grew up in scattered army bases in little rural areas all over the place. Lived everywhere from New York to to Germany, to all over. And everything was, like, we we were not homeschooled, but it was like private Christian schools. So it was kind of uh, learn at your own pace, do your own thing. A lot of uh, just left alone to, you know, read books, you know, build tree forts, play with friends on BMX bikes and stuff. And uh, so everything was going pretty good until about age 12 when I got into middle. And then my super Christian, super conservative parents didn't approve of that. And then went from metal into punk rock, which they thought was even worse. Uh, the whole time, we, at the time, my dad was getting his doctorate, so we were in Gainesville, Florida. So there were a lot of, that was the explosion of the indie comic boom. And like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just came out. And then, you know, obviously the first issue became worth a lot of money. So all these comic book 
shops, which were a new thing at the time. It used to be like just sold at like 7-Elevens and stuff. But all these comic shops are ordering a lot of indies. A lot of indie artists work at those comic shops and I talk to them and I bring my storyboards and you know, I, I thought that's what I could do. I was going to be a comic artist. So I was pretty much, I just discount my parents and, and go to the shops instead. And I guess the more extreme that I look, the more they, uh, the more they started taking notice. And the more, that, like, they sent me to a psychiatrist. I used to have to go to a psychiatrist um, twice a week, every week. They put my brother in a mental institution. Uh, it was like, a, if you ever heard that suicidal song, like, institutionalized. It's like, all they wanted was a Pepsi and she wouldn't give it to me. That was my brother. He spent an entire summer in a mental institute just because we looked punk rock. So we did it, all that. They kicked me out of the house when I turned 18 and they moved. And I slowly climbed up from being homeless to having a job at Chuck E. Cheese to working two jobs and putting myself through community college for art. And then I moved to New York City to make it. That Yeah, that's that's a brief synopsis where I'm sure there's a lot more to it. But yeah, I feel like I, I'm trying to kind of find any gleam of maybe good in all of that. And I, I feel like maybe you said that you were kind of an army brat, you moved around. Do you think kind of having that perspective of, of traveling and seeing, you know, things outside of maybe one small town, it kind of helped you with your your creative passions now just to kind of have that diversification when you were a kid? I think I think that helped, but I think the thing that helped the most is just the isolation and the, like being left alone to be an individual. You could, you could read what you wanted, you could explore what you wanted, you could do what you wanted. And my parents didn't really care. Like, as long as I was reading, and I read a lot. We didn't even have TV until I was in fifth grade. But I read a lot, and as long as I was reading, they liked it. So they thought, I must be on a good path. They have no idea what you can read, but... Yeah, and I know you, you, you talk quickly here or there about, uh, you know, going to college for um, illustration. So what, what was... I, I think it sounds like you maybe wanted to get into comic books. Were you wanting to... Is that right, or were you always thinking about this tattoo world, or, or what was your initial thoughts when you were, were going for illustration? Well, initially, it wasn't tattooing at all. It was, because uh, the only, my only exposure to tattooing, and keep in mind, I was in, like, small, you know, rural areas, like, living on army bases, so I'd see, like, you know, like, Mike Ness from Social Distortion on TV, and they'd all be covered in tattoos, but they'd be, like, those old-school, traditional tattoos. I was like, that's not really where I want to go with my art. I mean, that stuff's cool. I want to get a lot of those, but that's not where I want to go. So at the time, like, I could decide whether I wanted to be a writer or artist because living on your own and reading a lot of books and stuff, I had this crazy imagination, and I have all these stories I wanted to tell. I was like, well, if I just draw them, but I don't write them, I'm not really telling a story. And if I just speak it, I have all this visual stuff that I'm not getting across. And I think it was the first comics I saw, like Watchmen and Dark Knight, where they had more adult, well-written, you know, stories and the artwork. And the combination of the two impressed me. And that's when I said, hey, I will do that. That's perfect. That's everything I want. And it took a move to New York City to realize it's not so easy to, to do it as you think. It's, it's, it's not even a matter of whether you're talented in it. It's a matter of... Getting them to trust you to do several things at once is a matter of they don't want to pay you anything at all. In the meantime, I started tattooing 
thinking, you know, rent, and then eventually uh, I'll do something that, you know, that eventually I'll do something more art-related. And uh, I like tattooing so much that I stuck with it. I found out I could express myself artistically with that. Not only that, but it also gave me a little bit of financial backup so I could do illustrations and I could do writing on the side. So, I mean, it, it makes sense of, of why you kind of took that transition to tattooing. But the thing I've always wondered is how do people get into that other than maybe, is it most people just coming from, you know, other art forms and, and deciding to do that? Or is there a lot of tattoo tattooing schools? Or I feel like a lot of people I see are like doing like an apprenticeship under somebody else. But I just wonder how somebody makes that transition from never being a tattoo artist to now going and, and doing that. I don't know what the process is. Well, it's changed a lot over time. Like when I first got into it, there was like, I moved from, I lived in Northern Virginia right next to DC and uh, I worked in DC and in Northern Virginia, like there were no tattoo shops. You had to either go all the way down to Richmond or you had to go to Maryland. Like I got my first tattoo in Silver Spring, Maryland, the place called Fatty's Tattoos. And back in those days, it was more of a really close society. So it's more of like, uh, you know, hey, do you know the right people? You know, did, did you say the right words? It's like, it was less about what you could do artistically and more about if you made the right impression with an artist. And then, you know, you were really privileged if he taught you. Like, some people would pay crazy money. They, they, they wouldn't even touch a tattoo machine for three years. They just, like be like an intern for the shop, like doing all the cleaning, all the management, everything. Nowadays, it's not really like that. Um, you have a lot of people there, like tattoos got a lot bigger with like the whole like, uh, like uh, Ink Masters and Miami Ink and all, all the social media. And they say, they say that uh, I think 80 something percent of people under 35 are tattooed. And because it got so much bigger, there was obviously a lot more demand, and people were seeing on the shows that, hey, you could do a lot more than what people originally thought tattoos were, like the more tribal and, and Americana-based, like traditional tattoos. And now, if you're a good artist, there's a lot of people that are willing to take a chance on you, and they'll get you tattooing a lot faster than... Like, the old school ways is kind of like... Um, if you look at, like, those old, like, military, like, uh, you know, build-ups where, like, they put you through all sorts of stuff, they would kind of emulate that with the tattoo world. And, and in a way, they'd almost overdo it. Like, because it was like, oh, we, we're on a pedestal, and you're so privileged that we're just taking the time to teach you that, that they would make you go through, they basically make you go through hell to, like, weed out the people that, you know, couldn't hack it. And now it's, if you're a good artist, people look at it differently. Yeah. So what, when did you kind of come through the world? Was it, was it in the old school time or was it just a little bit easier for you? It was, it was a little bit easier for me, but it was still, I mean, it was those old school days. And I had a friend of my brother's who's a tattoo artist and he saw my paintings. He's like, that guy should tattoo. And he offered to teach me a tattoo. And at first I was like kind of on the fence about it because I was still really trying to make it as a comic artist and I interviewed with Penguin Books, I interviewed with DC Comics. DC Comics only wanted me to draw superheroes. You know, I didn't want to do that. And they're like, oh, we don't have a job for you then. And uh, so 
he impressed me. He taught me the tattoo. His name is Chad Divel. He worked at, at the time at Visual Diction in Carlisle, PA. Um, when my parents moved back to the States, that's where the station. So my brother was there. He was good friends with this guy, Chad Divel. That's He showed Chad my work. So that's how the connection was made. And I'd go there, and um, he got me my first set of inks, and he got me my first tattoo machine, and taught me a lot of the old school stuff. But in those days, people were really, you had a lot of haters. <laughs> people were really hardcore about a lot of stuff. So it was like, oh, well, you didn't have an apprenticeship with a guy where you sat in the shop for three years straight, so that's not considered a real apprenticeship. And, like, people wouldn't even look at the quality of your work. It was more, you know, you had to, you know, dot every, you know, every I and cross every T. And, like, if it wasn't perfect, they didn't care how good your work looked. And I remember, you know, people people were fighting over everything back in those days. Like, if your shop sold, you know, T-shirts or sold anything besides just tattooing, you know, they would, they would say you're not a real shop. They'd actually have people with flyers outside your shop handing out flyers saying real shops don't do this. Mm. So yeah, it was it was full on hatery in those days. <laughs> you, had, you had people, if they opened a shop too close to you, they would throw a Molotov cocktail through your window and burn your shop down. Oh my goodness. So yeah, it was the the Wild West for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean that you you kind of alluded to it. You came from kind of the drawing on paper world i just wonder how well does that lend itself to tattooing does people who you know are are good artists does that make them generally if they take the time a good tattoo artist like what's that transition from paper to skin because i feel like that would be quite a quite a big leap well it can it doesn't necessarily but the thing is like back in the old school days a lot of people they learned how to draw when they learned how to tattoo and a lot of their drawing was kind of mediocre and more based on what worked as a tattoo. And then you had this influx of people that, you know, they went to art school, they're really good artists, and they're trying to be tattoo artists. But some of that stuff doesn't hold up very well on skin, especially over time. Uh, because, ta you know, tattoos, they, they blur a little bit over time. Uh, the skin isn't a flat surface, you know. Maybe you grow some skin hair, you get a tan, you know. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that you have to look into that people do look into now. But at the time, it was like every new thing. It was like, how is this going to work out? Because people weren't really used to that. Kind of maybe fast forward quite a bit. Let's talk about your current tattoo shop. And then also, you know, you, you talked about people burning down tattoo shops. I don't know whether it was just a coincidence that your last shop burnt down or if there's something you know, <laughs> sinister happening. But talk a little bit no, about that too. I, it, I mean, the, the place next to us was a restaurant, and the building owner had done a really bad job. Like, he didn't build a firewall in between us. He had a wall that didn't go all the way to the ceiling, and the fire started in the restaurant and hopped over the wall and burned us down. So it, it was more, like, bad property management than anything dealing with tattooing. But back in the day, I mean, a lot of shops, they'd be run by motorcycle gangs. If you left the shop... They would track you down and break your hands with a hammer so you could never tattoo again. It, it, it was pretty it was pretty hardcore in the old days. I would say so. Well, I'm glad that you're, you're – I'm, I'm not glad your shop burnt down, but I'm glad that it wasn't for uh, maybe some of these more uh, tough reasons, it, just a, a restaurant. But let's talk about your current shop. What uh, – I, I think you have a partner too, but talk a little bit about, you know, 
creating your own shop because that's obviously another leap. We talked about your leap from being an artist to being you know somebody who does art on skin now to actually being a business manager, business owner. Talk a little bit about uh, that transition. Well, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be a business owner. Like I, I've been tattooing twenty years, and I've done guest spots, and there are people who've been tattooing even longer than me. And I'd be talking with them. They're like, "Yeah, it's, it's so much trouble owning a shop." And also, back in the old school days, when the thing was tougher, it was also tougher to be a business owner because you didn't have as much clientele. You know, the, everything was a little bit harder. But I was like pretty settled on, I'll just be the artist. I don't want to deal with all the payroll and licensing fees and all that sort of stuff. And one of the last shops I worked at, it, it had some really good artists there. But the guy who owned the shop, who was also a really good artist, just started, I guess he figured he was making so much money off of us, he didn't really have to put anything into the shop. So when he lured me into the shop, he was saying, Oh, you know, we're, we're about to start a website. We're about to do this. We're, he never did any of that. And then, like, we run out of supplies. They come up. He's like, oh, you buy that now. It's like, well, thanks for telling me the minute I have a customer in the chair, you know. But we basically learned how to run our shop by how badly that shop was run. And me and Paul were both working there. And we're like, let's just open our own shop. We know not what not to do. And we're both kind of mellow guys. We're not going to be like hard asses down, you know, down people, breathing down people's necks, trying to make them, you know, fit into some mold or whatever. So we're like, as long as you show up and do good artwork, that's all we care about. So now as a, as a business owner, what, uh, I mean, how, how do you, I guess, how do you find good tattoo artists? I know, you know, I, I've talked to people in, a lot of other worlds where maybe they're doing an audition and things like that. What does it look like to, to staff a shop? Because obviously it's not just a, an easy interview. Is it a portfolio? What's that look like? Well, it's uh, in the old school days, it, it's changed a little bit. In the old school days, it used to be you'd go in with the portfolio. A lot of shops would say, all right, what shop did you work at previously? Then they call that shop to double check on you, and then they give you a few days to work there, and they stand over you watching you tattoo. Um, now it's a little bit different. Like we don't really, nobody really calls your old shop. I mean that happens a little bit, but it's not a priority like it used to be. It's more like what we do is you know we talk to somebody if he was at another shop previously. You know, we might contact that shop and, you know, see what their impression of him was. And then we invite them to do a guest spot. And we say, you know, let's see if we're comfortable with you. Let's see if you're comfortable with us. And then he'll do the guest spot. And, you know, we try not to, like, micromanage and you know, stand over his, his tattooing work and, and, you know, make things hard on him. But, you know, we will occasionally stop by and like, oh, hey, man, what are you working on? take a look at it and kind of get a feel for him, you know, get a feel for his personality, what his artwork looks like. Um, I remember one of the guys that we heard recently, I said, you know, exactly that. I was like, do a, do a guest spot. The first day he did one tattoo, it really didn't impress us. And I was not going to hire him based off that. The second day he brought somebody in, he did a tattoo. We're like, wow, he's really good. And then we hired him based off that. So that that's kind of the process, kind of a, a softer feeling people out. Yeah, and I guess that's 
the weird part to me with it, I don't have any tattoos, but I know obviously it's a very permanent thing. So you say, you know, one day you did a tattoo that didn't necessarily impress you, but the next one was, was always think, well, that first day that maybe it was, you know, off an off day, that's still a permanent tattoo. I don't know. I just, that just kind of scares me a little bit because obviously if you're having an off day, that's, that's a permanent thing on somebody's skin. Well, it's not that he did a bad tattoo. It's just, you know, it, it was a smaller tattoo. It, it was a simpler tattoo. It just, it wasn't, I mean, we kind of, kind of consider ourselves a higher end studio. So we were really good artists working there and we're like, you know, the tattoo we did, we're like, well, you know, that would fly for a lot of shops that, you know, are just walk-in shops, but we really want to see that you have artistic potential. And we didn't really see that with the first one, but like I said, it wasn't a giant, heavily detailed tattoo. It was an older client, and the older client wanted something more simple, which I understand, but that doesn't show us your ability. You know, some like, for instance, if you applied for an artistic job for like uh, comic books, you know, and you did like, you know, one little tiny illustration, but you're capable of a full on splash page, but you only did the illustration. So we're like, we don't see what your potential is. So we saw the potential with the second one and we're like, you know, it, it was a sleeve about three quarters of it was already done. It was healed up. And he added onto that sleeve, and we're like, well, the sleeve looks beautiful, healed up. What he added onto it looks amazing, so we should definitely hire him. Yeah, now that makes sense. And I just wonder, too, you know, you talked about being a, a high-end shop. How much of the, you know, the, the world of tattooing, how much of, you know, your shop is it that less, you know, walk-in? Obviously, when, when you're worried about, you know, people's quality, it matters on people that's just walking in. And, you know, the name on your, your hat, the, the shop matters more than the actual tattoo artist how much of the world now is people that already kind of have their maybe even social media but their clientele built up where you know you're hiring them basically just to give them a, a seat and they really have their own clientele they're just bringing into the shop and tattooing it doesn't really matter where they're at i don't know whether that's really a thing or not but i feel like with with social media it's almost the artist now rather than the shop no, it, it really is. It, I, I remember back in the day, because there was a lot less social media. So it was like, you know, it, a shop would get a magazine spread. A shop would have, you know, a website. When websites came around, I, I remember before websites were even really a thing. You know, a, a shop would do conventions. It would be the whole shop, and there might be five artists, and they'd all have a banner from that shop. You know, like you mentioned the shop. And so... It, it, you're right, the focus has transitioned more towards the artist as opposed to the shop. And anyone that we hire, we tend to hire people that already have a clientele. You know, anybody good has a clientele. You do have shops that are more like the walk-in shops, like the we-do-anything shops. And if you go to a major city, you kind of have both. If you go to a more rural location, you often have a walk-in shop. Usually what will happen too is because tattooing has gotten so popular, is you might have like you know five shops in a smaller town or four shops in a smaller town and out of those shops one will be really good other really good is kind of subjective because really good for the area they're a big fish in a small pond you know but the one will be really big really good and one will just kind of do anything and you know feed the demand this may be a harder question just to kind of put you on the spot for but what uh 
I guess what's some things that might surprise people about tattooing or what's some misconceptions people have about the, the industry that you can kind of uh, dispel? Well, I think one of the, the biggest things, there, all right, there are two things that are, you know, horrible, like Ink Master, Miami Ink, you know, kind of cliches that really are not true and they bug everyone in the tattoo industry. One is that if you're an Ink Master, you can do everything well. It's like, okay, if, let's take this to the medical profession for a minute. Like if you go to, uh, if you go to a local clinic and they can treat everything, they're probably not the guy to do brain surgery on you. The guy who does brain surgery is probably not the guy to treat your kidneys. You know, the guy who does heart surgery is probably not the guy to do brain surgery. You know, so it's like if you're really good to something, you often specialize. And you put all your focus on that because it's way too big and diverse for somebody to be amazing at everything. So if you take like uh, Japanese is really big and my preference is Japanese is based more on Japanese art. You know, like their their watercolor style looks very distinctive. And you have a lot of people that, you know, they're really good technical tattoo artists, but they don't capture the look of Japanese artwork. And the ones who are very good technically and capture the look of Japanese artwork might not be the person who could do amazing biomech, you know, sort of flesh and machinery sleeves on you. So the guy who can't do that, though, also probably can't do the amazing Japanese you know, base piece. So find a specialist. That, that's the big thing. A lot of people think that if you can do everything, you're amazing. No. Um, the other thing is people think that there's another thing that they get from the TV shows. They can go in with the big piece and they'll get it right on the spot. No, if you have a big piece, you go in for a consultation and the person kind of draws it up and shoots some sketches by you and comes up with the final product. It's not a quick and easy, sit down in the chair and we'll get your back piece done. Now that makes sense. And that kind of leads back to the uh, an earlier question. It definitely makes sense to me that, you know, people are going to specialize when they're good at, at one thing or, or just a few things. How important it is is it when running a shop to have, you know, a very diverse group of artists? Is it, do you ever like, oh, you're really good at, you know, Japanese artwork, but I've, we've already got two people that are like that. Now we need somebody else in the shop that's good at something else just for that walk-in clientele. I don't know if you even have that, but is it important to have people that are good in all these different areas or given that people kind of come for the artists, it doesn't necessarily matter that much anymore. Well, the the whole tattoo community has evolved so much that that's not even really as much of a thing anymore. Like it used to be, if you were the big, amazing, talked about shop in the area, you had people who could handle almost everything. Mm. Now it's like, well, this shop specializes in this. You can go to this shop down the street that specializes in that. Mm. And a really good shop will refer you to somebody else. They'll go, hey man, that's really not my thing. This is a shop you should go to. And then the other shop will do the exact same thing back for you. So if I'm like, you know, like I specialize in like realistic horror. So if I do realistic horror and I've had people come to me say, hey, man, I want to get this. And they'll mention a bunch of Japanese elements. I'm like, that's not really what I specialize in. Let me send you to somebody who can do it better. They're like, oh, man, I love your tattoos. I'm like, yeah, you love my tattoos that are realistic horror. You don't love my Japanese tattoos because you've never seen them. Mm. But I will tell you who you should go to. And I've had people that 
specialize in something else and people come to them for something I specialize in and they'll say, hey, you should go to Dan Hank for it. So like it, it works both ways. I like that. I like that you guys have went from, uh, I guess, breaking each other's hands when you try to leave the shop to now referring each other. It sounds like you're, everyone's mellowing out a bit, huh? It, it is. And you get some people with that kind of more old school attitude, but more and more they get ostracized from the community if they do that. Like you even have people that kind of back in the day, they were the rock stars. And the ones that still stay relevant are the ones that kind of soften their approach and have a nicer attitude and like, yeah, I'm the veteran. I want to help you learn and help you get better. Yeah. So what if someone's listening, let's say they're, you know, a young artist, whether a tattoo or something else, beyond just having quality work, what advice do you give to people to, uh, I guess, set yourself apart? Because obviously social media is a, a crazy world. You know, obviously that's an easy way to get your stuff out there, but it's also oversaturated. So how do you, uh, what do you tell people that, that maybe want to set themselves apart? Well, I think it's more what people do this wrong <laughs> than telling people what they should do this right. Sure. So what they do this wrong is they say, some people go to the extreme where they go, I definitely don't want to be influenced by anybody. I want to be my own thing. It's like, well, when you first start out, you should be influenced by people. Look at the people whose work you really like and see what they do that produces that. And then you can develop their own style. Once you know all the basics and once you have the solid grounding, then you can expand outwards. You know, the other people, they very, they try and copy stuff exactly. They're like, okay, this person does it. I'm going to do it. Like, they're popular. They have a lot of fans. A lot of people like their work. I'm going to do an exact copy of it. And, and that's not good either. So you, you kind of have to ride the line. And I think good artists do that. Next question I feel like you probably get all the time. And honestly, with given that you're, you know, your specialization, you make some very interesting tattoos. So I don't know whether this even works for you, but I'm sure every tattoo artist gets asked, you know, what's the craziest thing people have asked you to tattoo or the craziest locations? Any, any interesting stories there? I have probably more than we have time to go over. <laughs> um, when, almost everybody, when they start out, um, there are a couple of people that start out at like really exclusive shops and only do custom artwork. But a lot of people, when they start out, work at kind of flash walk-in shops. Mm -hmm. And all my best stories are from flash walk-in shops. Um, I could go on forever. I remember there's one person, I was tattooing um, an angel on them. Off, uh, we, had, we had a set of flash called Cherry Creek Flash that back in the day everybody had. If they had good flash, they had Cherry Creek. And so I was tattooing an angel off Cherry Creek. And the guy kept disappearing in the bathroom and coming out. He was rubbing cocaine in the tattoo. You know, which kind of numbs the skin, but it makes it heal horribly. Ah. So, you know, I, I, he did it a couple times, and then I caught him on. I was like, hey, you know, what are you doing? I was like, you're ruining your tattoo. I'm not going to do this. You know, so I kicked him out. There was, I remember there was another guy that came in. He wanted a, a bulldog tattooed on his chest. And I was like, okay. And he was a big guy. He was like 250 pounds, solid muscle. I think he was ex-Marine. And see, so when the bulldog tattooed on his chest, I said, okay. So I started drawing it up. He leaves, gets a bottle of vodka, comes back with almost the entire bottle polished off. And uh, so I'm debating whether, you, you know, if you have that much alcohol in your system, it's not that good. But he was already kind of getting a little antagonistic. And the shop owner's like, Dan, just bang it out as fast as you can. Bang it out. So I started on him. And while I'm tattooing him, he starts... 
barking like a dog. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'm like, you know, and I stop. He's like, ah, oh, you got to get into it. You got to get into it when you tattoo. All right, so I keep tattooing after a little while. Yeah, I, I have more stories like this. I can go on forever. I've been tattooing 20 years. But, yeah, back in the days, it was, it was a little bit different. I, yeah, I can only imagine, those, you know, those early days where you were having to do the more walk-in things. That's that's probably where the interesting clients came from. So, yeah, I, I can only imagine you've got quite a few stories. But let's kind of move on to something else you, you mentioned, um, and that is, I guess, the tattooing coming more into the mainstream with, with all these reality shows. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people where their, you know, their profession has now turned into a kind of a reality show phenomenon and some, there's always goods to it. And then there's always a lot of bads too. So how do you feel, you know, about, you know, the ink masters and LA ink and all that kind of stuff? Has it helped or has it hurt or is it kind of in the middle or, or what, I guess, what, what are your thoughts there? I think that it, it has helped, which is probably a controversial opinion, but I think it has helped. And it's just made tattooing more mainstream and more popular. And you're getting people that are even better artists in it. You're getting people that went to art school and they get out and they realize, hey, this could pay my bills. This is a good venue to go into and they'll go into it. Um, the way it's hurt is it's given people bad impressions on what can be done with the tattoo and how it can be done. Like uh, one thing that really bothers me too, aside from the two I already mentioned, is people will do cover-ups and they'll take a picture and people are like, oh, you can do this cover up with all these light colors over dark colors. And yeah, that works for the camera, but that top layer of skin that you deposit the ink in dies, peels off, and the, the second layer underneath it actually has the old tattoo and the new ink that you put in the skin. And once that top layer peels off, the cover up is now nowhere near as comprehensive. So it, it's, you know, there, there's a big fight between, you know, what you do and what's going to hold up over time. I mean, you also have tattoos that they look good for like five months or six months, but a year down the road, they're going to look horrible. Like when people get lettering too small and so on, like it just bleeds down the skin. It looks like a blur over time. You get people also that, you know, they'll take a picture and then they go on Photoshop and they make it look amazing and they post it and people are like, oh, wow, that's what tattoos look like. You're like, tattoos do not look like that. Even though obviously it's a permanent thing for people, again, kind of back to that permanent thing, I guess the the reality world is like like every other reality show, and it's really kind of there for the camera there, and they maybe don't care as much about what happens when the camera's off. Right. I think the probably the best advice is go look at people's portfolios. Um, if you know somebody's been tattooed by a local person, look at the tattoo that's on them. And what you want to see in portfolios, is you want to see healed work. You don't want to see work that's just done and they took a picture of it and it's a it's a fresh tattoo. That's not really going to capture what it looks like over time and how it holds up. So, like, there's a Instagram site called, uh, I think it's called Freshly Healed, and it shows you what the tattoo looked like when they first took a photo of it and what it looks like now. And uh, it's kind of an eye-opener. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and I want to ask you one more story that I, I read about with you. I don't know where it fits in your timeline, if it's even a tattooing story, um, but uh, you you mentioned getting stabbed by somebody. What happened there? <laughs> That's before I was a tattoo artist. I lived in D.C. Those was uh, Marion Barry years when it, it, crime was really bad. And uh, I remember even like the 
like mediocre communities would have a gate around them because it was so dangerous they had to keep people out and there was my um, my girlfriend at the time and her sister moved to live with us from the suburbs and she walked her fluffy white dog around the block at 12 at night and a crackhead came up and forced her to take them inside the house and it, it ended up with a knife fight between me and the crackhead like and then he uh, he severed the tendon on my thumb he tried to stab me a bunch of times. I have a jack with all these holes right around the chest. And I finally got the knife from him, and I tried to stab him, but he was too fast. Like, I was wearing big boots, and I was trying to chase him. And we called the police, and the police could really care less. They had, a, they had a station right down the street, but it took him 45 minutes to get there. And they called from across the street to make sure he was still there. <laughs> so, it, D.C. was really bad in those years. Well, I guess fast forward, I, yeah, I'm glad that your, your thumb healed nicely because i feel like that would have been a, a a bad thing for you as a tattoo artist if your thumb was jacked up well it, it was it was my left hand oh, so my you. right hand is what i tattoo with oh good all right one more question about tattooing before uh, before we get to your your books and that is another thing which may just be a, a tv thing but uh something i always think man that looks like that i don't think i could ever do that have you ever tattooed yourself yeah, I did. Most tattoo artists have tattooed themselves at one point or another. Um, I tattooed most of my uh, left arm, and it's pretty difficult. Like, you know, spreading the skin, I'd be like, you know, trying to like squeeze it between my legs, or have my girlfriend hold it. And uh, at the time, I figured my artwork was a lot more advanced than my tattooing, and I was like desperate to show people that I could do more because I was just getting little tiny tattoos. So I did most of my left arm myself. Oh my goodness. Well, that's, that's, uh, I, you know, I've seen people do like little bitty things on their leg, but a full almost sleeve on their arm. That's, that's a whole nother level. Right. Well, when I get into something, I get into a dark course. I I tend to go overboard, but most people have tattooed themselves. And a lot of people, when they apprentice, they'll do a small tattoo on like the leg or something. Yeah. So let's talk about something else you got into. And that is writing. What made you decide to start writing books? Obviously, you're a creative guy. That's that's evident, given you know your your work in illustration and then in tattooing. But what made you decide? Hey, I want to start putting some some words on paper too. Well, I wrote my first book when I was in fifth grade. I mean, I'm sure it's horrible if you read it now, but you know, I, I had the writing bug. I like to tell stories. That's what it's all about. Huh? And you know, I, I told you I couldn't decide whether I wanted to to do art or I wanted to do writing because both tell a story but both kind of need each other to tell the story and first i was into comic books i was like that's gonna do it and then you know i decided you know maybe like interviewing with them and then and the practicality of it of creating that much artwork to tell that much story like it, it it's a very long process and i decided that probably what's best is illustrated books, like books with a number of illustrations in them. So I could, I could get across the visual aspect with the illustrations and I'd have more more words to tell a more complex story. So yeah. that, that's kind of what I got to. What, what, like, I kind of, like, after after the whole, the whole comic book thing and I was interviewing with, um, I was interviewing with uh, Tor books and Penguin books and, yeah, you know, I decided. I decided I want to do that. Um, I started doing all that. I came down with brain cancer. Uh, my life got very chaotic because uh, I was moving around all the time. I was newly married. 
Then I, I had like my 15 minutes of fame where I was like in all the tattoo magazines and stuff. And then I remember what really lit a fire in my ass is there was a British horror writer named Wayne Simmons. And he wrote a zombie book and one of the main characters was a tattoo artist. And at the time, like I said, I was in all the magazines. So he was like, oh, this is a guy to ask. So, you know, he asked me to read it, give him my opinion on his portrayal of a tattoo artist. I said, well, there's a lot of change. So I, I told him he listened to me, and then that kind of gave me the bug to, hey, I really got to do this again. Yeah, well, I want to take a, a quick break on your writing. I don't want to just gloss over the the part with brain cancer. I didn't mention much of that because obviously that would be a lot to unpack, but just kind of tell us what happened there and and hopefully a, a, a good uh, good spot that you're at now. Well, I was doing I was doing a lot of artwork, and I just been tattooed. I was tattooed in two years, which people they evolve faster to tattoo artists now than they did back then. I feel like they do at least. Um, but I've been tattooing for two years, and I felt I just started to get my stride as a tattoo artist. But I was painting covers for books, and I was doing a lot of art for bands and stuff like that. And I started getting headaches, and I remember I went to one clinic and I. At the time, I barely made any money, and you know, I just started tattooing. So I went to a cheap local clinic. Uh, I went to get the prescription filled at the pharmacy. They couldn't read the handwriting that called the clinic. The clinic wouldn't even answer. Then I went to another clinic that was a lot more expensive. They said you're dehydrated. They pumped me full of the saline solution. They said, oh, if you feel worse tomorrow, give us a call. And the next day, I was like throwing up, and my girlfriend was calling and calling. And when they finally came into the clinic, they are like, go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital, I told them the same thing again. They said, oh, you're a brain bleed, you probably got kicked or punched in the head. Put them in a CAT scan, they go, oh, wait, it's cancer. So what, what happened there? Well, they, they said it was a slow-growing tumor. Um, who knows how long I'd had it, but because the inside was all dead tissue, necrotic tissue, once it burst open, I'd be dead. So I probably had about two weeks. But they, you know, it, it gotten big enough that it was giving me headaches because it was tension against my brain. And they're like, we have to operate right away. So they did a couple MRIs, like with contrast and everything. And then they operate on me. And uh, unless we're living in the matrix, you know, I'm still here. And uh, after that, they ran a pathology on it to see whether it's cancerous, you know, or not. It was. So they talked to me about chemo. They talked to me about chemo, about radiation. I did both because it's more successful when you do the two together. And uh, then it's a long road to recovery. It took about five years you know, for me to recover, but I'm stubborn. So I was like, I refuse to give up. So I was still like trying to work on paintings on the side. Still tattooing three days a week. Still going to the gym a couple days a week. So, I mean, you said that happened. That happened when you were tattooing for two years, took five years to recover. You've been tattooing for 20 years. So I assume you're in a, a good spot now. Yeah. Like, so the, the, I mean, it, it's not, it's nothing's came back and you're, you're cancer free, correct? Well, yeah, I've so far I'm cancer free. And they say after five years, you're considered, they, they say it's cured, but it's not like you right. absolutely won't get cancer. You probably have about the same chance as everyone else. Right. Right. So I did MRIs for about six years. And after that, I stopped doing MRIs entirely because now, because those old school MRI machines, you know, they're little, you're, you're like a bullet shoved inside a cartridge. You're like this, you know, little person shoveled way deep inside and they keep you there for like an hour with like 
powerful magnets flipping around your head. And, right. and it made me claustrophobic. So I hate hospitals. I hate MRI machines. So I don't go anymore. But I went for six years, and it didn't come back within six years. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. For sure. Um, so let's get back to the books. I definitely didn't want to just gloss over that uh, that fact at, at all. Um, tell us, I guess, I know you've written a, a few books. It's going to be kind of up to you. I want to kind of know what your, you know, your books are about, the genre, maybe a synopsis. You can tell us just about this newest book if that's what you want. You can kind of give us a highlight of all of them. But uh, yeah, just kind of tell us a little bit about what people are going to be reading uh, if they pick up one of your books. Well, it's apocalyptic, dark sci-fi, you know, which is kind of stuff I'm into. Like, uh, I was really into watching Outer Limits and Twilight Zone. I mean, after we got a TV, we didn't get TV till fifth grade. But when we got it, my parents would only let us watch an hour a day, and that started to watch. So that always impressed me way more than, like, you know, slasher flicks or, you know, like, incidental kind of like cliched stories i liked it when it's really interesting like weird creatures you know strange situations so I, I try and keep that going with my books um and i try to make it complex enough that there there's enough going on it doesn't seem like it's the same thing but i also try and make it based enough on reality like every book i do a lot of research on like right now i'm writing about the alien invasion so i have a a whole stack of books that I'm reading up uh, on ways that insurgents fight a larger military and so on. But I kind of kept this idea from comic books where everything happens in the same continuity. So all of my books, they kind of relate to each other. They're all in the same world. But I also don't like it where you have to read one to read the other. So I try and keep them kind of loosely connected. I gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, this may be a, a, another tough question that you don't want to you don't want to pick but what what do you what do you feel like you enjoy more if someone said you're going to be super successful but you got to pick tattooing or you got to pick writing which which one do you you think you gravitate towards more or you just say i don't want to answer that <laughs> well i don't think that's going to happen <laughs> but um if i had an ideal world which is probably a better answer <laughs> yeah yeah if I had an ideal world i would draw i would write and i would tattoo I would just like the, it, it would almost be like split into thirds. Uh, I gotcha. Well, very good. Well, I'm glad you're doing everything that you're doing. You, you love enough to, to want to kind of split it, it up. So how can people, uh, how can people find these books and then tell us the, the names of them too, if you would. Yeah. My first book is uh, the black seas of infinity and second book, which is kind of a collection of short stories. Like after I wrote that first book, and I was searching around for publishers. I kept writing, and so I had a whole collection of short stories, some of which have been published. I collected, I pulled them all together, and I wrote a novella, a novella, and it was my second book. And then I wrote my third book. It's called The End of the World, and it's a sequel to the first book with some of the characters from my second book in it. But uh, it's kind of like uh, Road Warrior to Mad Max. Like, you don't have to read one to understand the other one. I got you. Where are people going to find these books? They're on Amazon. Uh, probably everything's available on Amazon these days. But <laughs> you can find them on Amazon. You can find it on audible.com. You can find it Barnes and Nobles, Kobo. Pretty much every major site has it. Yeah, definitely. People that are interested in that genre, check it out for sure. Uh, how can people, you know, kind of wrapping things up, how can people 
connect with you as a whole? I know you have a website. Let's uh, let's give all your connection points. I don't know. You know, we didn't mention like the name of your your shop. I'm sure you're well booked out, but people just wanting to connect with you, whether it's your books, your you as a person, your your tattooing, kind of just give those connections. Well, everything is on my website. So if you go to danique.com, you'll see everything. You'll see I put all my art projects, uh, put all my writing, I put you know videos, everything's on there. My website or my website for the shop is um, The Abyss Fine Art. It's called The Abyss. That's the name of the shop. And it's in Long Beach, New York. And I'm also on I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm uh, Dead Guy LLC on Instagram. I used to have Dan Hake, and then somebody hacked into it from Russia. So I had to start a brand new site. So it's called Dead Guy LLC. I'm on Facebook. I'm on TikTok. If you're an artist, you pretty much have to be on all the social media. Just get your name out there. I got you. Well, it was a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So that was Dan Hink. Really cool guy. Really enjoyed speaking with him. All of his links, whether it's his personal website, whether it's the website for his tattoo shop, they'll all be in the show notes. Do check him out. Uh, personal website, you're going to be able to see all of the amazing art that he's done, some of his tattoos. Uh, you'll be able to find where to pick up those books if you're into you know, those, those uh, post-apocalyptic type uh, genre of books. Definitely recommend checking his out. Uh, if you're interested in his shop, you'll see, uh, see some of that uh, information as well. But I, I learned so much. I, I knew very little about tattooing. Probably everything I know was from some of those reality shows. And as we learned, you know, just like any other reality show, they're not always necessarily completely accurate. So I, uh, I, I appreciated him kind of breaking things down. For me, someone who has zero tattoos. Um, so I, I learned a lot. And I think uh, I hope you uh, hope you enjoyed it as well. Hope uh, hope you learned something. Uh, maybe it just kind of solidifies what you already know. But uh I always like talking to these people that are in these interesting professions. Maybe this is one that's a little more common than, you know, being a ballet dancer or an Irish dancer, but it's still something that just amazing and it's still something that takes a ton of practice and a ton of skill to to truly master. So Dan was an amazing uh, amazing person to walk me through that world. I really appreciate that. Like I said, do uh, give him some love with all that uh, social media and the uh, the book. Um, of course, if you're not already, go follow us on uh, on Instagram, Not Enough Podcast. Leave us that five-star review on Spotify and Apple. Um, write a review on Apple. That's always amazing, too. Uh, but I appreciate you being here. Uh, if you do nothing else, catch us next week. And uh, thanks for being here again. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.